Father, that is indeed the cry of our hearts. Many here in the end of 2021 are burdened and resonate with the song that was just sung. We're thankful for that that truth of of a Savior who is gentle and lowly, who receives broken sinners like us, but is not going to finish until we're made new and rebuilt. Part of that, Lord, to see your glory is to come to the Word of God and to have the Spirit show us ourselves and to show us the glories of Christ week in and week out as we come and gather as a as a church to worship. So we come now to the portion of our worship service where we expound the word of God and we ask Holy Spirit that you would use it and encourage our hearts. May this word come not in, in simple reason and logic and in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with abundant conviction. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At Twin Cities Bible Church years ago, uh, I started in ministry as sort of their teen pastor. And I really enjoyed working with the teens. One of the things that we did during the Christmas season is every year on the sat whatever the Saturday was before Christmas we would we would gather and we would go Christmas caroling really enjoyed doing that with the teens raise your hand let's participate if you have ever done Christmas caroling in the past raise your hand a show of hands so many of us have done Christmas caroling yeah, I think if you know, if you were here a couple days ago, you know my favorite Christmas carol by far is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'm thankful that we sung it today. I want you to listen to the second stanza, stanza number two of that great hymn of the faith. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, Jesus, our Emmanuel. This morning, I want to speak to you about these two names of the Messiah. These two names for the babe that was born in Bethlehem and swaddled up and placed in the stone feeding trough. The two names that teach us, I think, in, in the names themselves, 
really are the essence of the whole message of Christmas. And these two names aren't just found in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Jesus our Emmanuel. They're found, drawn right out of Scripture itself. Brandon read that in our Scripture reading. I want you to turn back to that place in Matthew chapter 1. Page 957, if you have a Bible on the back of the pew. And we'll pick it up. You know this is the account of the birth of Christ, and an angel is speaking. So we'll get right to the passage we want to look at in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. The text says, remember Joseph is considering what to do about the situation that's happening, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So we're going to look then first at the name that he was called. They will call his name Jesus. Let's look first at that name in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is really a form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Did you know that? It's a form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. God, the rescuer. And so like Joshua of old, Jesus will lead his people into deliverance, will lead his people into rest. And even in the Old Testament, when you look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and then into Joshua and beyond, even in the Old Testament, the, the, the kind of deliverance that matters, the greatest need for deliverance for human beings is not physical deliverance, even from giants in land and that sort of thing. It's not physical deliverance or from poverty or oppression or sickness. In fact, 
there's something that's more fundamental even in the Old Testament that speaks of this deliverance that Jesus would bring, that Yahweh saves would bring. Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8. These passages are in your bulletin handout. If you'd like to, it's a good day to have the bulletin handout in front of you so you don't have to turn to all these passages. Psalm 130, verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel. Okay, that's the word for deliverance. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Iniquities is another term for all his sins. The angel comes, right, and says to Joseph, Jesus is going to be his name, for he will save his people from their sins. It doesn't, it's not just New Testament. It's not just Paul that talks about salvation from sin. This is Moses who speaks of this. This is the message of the whole Bible. We need deliverance from sins. And if we get deliverance from anything else physical, it's a picture of a greater deliverance. He will save his people from their sins. The greatest enemy of mankind is sin. It is. It's the greatest enemy. I know it's just sin. It's just, what does that even mean anymore? But that's, the great, that's your greatest enemy. Even as a believer, the greatest enemy of human beings is sin. What is sin? Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. Sin is disobedience to God's law. You find God's law not in your own brain. That's what our culture <laughs> likes to make up their own law. And no, you find God's law in His Word. It's disobedience to the commands of God in His Word. So sin is a failure to live by God's rules in this life. God said, Voila, this creation is good, and God is pretty good at knowing what's good for his, create, his created order. And we don't trust him for the good. We trust ourselves for the good. We throw God's good on the side, and that is sin. Sin is ultimately unbelief and not trusting God for the good and saying, I feel that this would be good for me. And God, I like this, but I throw away that. That attitude is sin. It's a failure to live for our Creator. It's disobedience to, to what God has said. And when we sin, our relationship with God is broken. But we are born in sin, so you are born shattered with God. Your relationship with God was shattered. Because sin caused a spiritual separation from God. That's what that prophet Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus. 
Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 says this. Listen to these words. I'll read verse 1 as well. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's the problem with sin. It throws mankind away from God. And that gap is eternal. And it's, so, it's like a Grand Canyon. And isn't it foolish when, when people try to jump to God and try to clear the Grand Canyon? I can get about, at each 50, I can get about six and a half feet on a full sprint. It's terrible. I got to get across the Grand Canyon of the justice of God. I can't do that. Sin has separated us from God. And the Bible calls that spiritual death. That separation is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, and every single human being has sinned, because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is pretty good. The white, hot, blazing, thrice holiness of God. That's His glory. We've fallen short of it, which implies something. If you don't have the white righteousness of the glory of God, you're not going to be in His presence because you've fallen short of that glory. That's trouble. That's trouble for us. We have sinned. We were born in it. and We proved it every day of our life. We have broken God's law. I don't need to go through the Ten Commandments. You know that you've lied. You know you've lusted. You know you've coveted. You've taken the Lord's name in vain. And on and on it goes. But if you're not certain about that, listen to Jesus. The two biggest laws that sum up all the laws in the entire Bible. It's the law of love. And it's found in Mark chapter 12, 30 and 31. Jesus says, and you shall love. The Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. How have you done loving the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength? Anyone? Anyone dare to raise their hand and to tell me they've done that? We've broken the overarching law that explains every one of them. And, for good measure, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There, Jesus says there's no other commandments greater than these. We don't love the Lord like this. We don't, not even Charles Spurgeon loved the Lord like this, Brian. He was a mess. He was a mess, a godly mess. We don't love our neighbor like this. We all fall short. We fall short of pleasing God. 
So the problem is if we, if we don't fundamentally come to grips with sin, we start to do things like this. We try to love God and others in a good enough way that God will say close enough. Pretty, pretty good. We try to love. We try to do good things. We try to be sincere. We, we try to s- start doing religious things, right? Especially after New Year's resolution. Exercise and religious things. It's our resolution. Bible reading plans. We, we, we try to start doing religious things like going to church, like getting baptized, and we try to stop doing the wrong things like swearing or problem is that God demands that we obey his law and his word perfectly and we fall short of his standards we fall short of the glory of God Jesus at the end of his sermon in Matthew 5:48 says you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect it's not just metaphorical he's not just being hyper, speaking in hyperbole because James Jesus's brother writes in James I think it's chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So we cannot do it. We can't stop and start enough because of our sin. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot get back to God. We cannot pay for our sins. We cannot be as righteous as God our Creator requires us to be, to be in fellowship with Him forever. Our sin has separated us. What are we to do? Nothing. You can't do anything. That's why His name was called Jesus. And He'll call His name Jesus for you and he will get together. He'll work with you to... No. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus must come. God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit must have a plan and come on a rescue mission and come to save sinners like us. You say, how? That leads me to the second name. First, we've looked at his name is called Jesus, and secondly, his name is called Emmanuel. Look at verse 22. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, 700 years before Jesus was born. And think about it. If sin separates us from God, I'm very happy about the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The good news of the gospel is that because his name is Jesus, not only has God come, 
the Son of God taken upon flesh and is with us. But his coming down to be with us has allowed us to be with him. It's an amazing gospel. How did Emmanuel then bring us back into the presence of God? We've been separated. How were we brought back into the presence of God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind. He said it was very good. He placed Adam and Eve right in that garden, and they were happy, and they were holy, and they were trusting God for the good, and they were fellowshipping in the nearness of the presence. I think of a Christophany of, of, of God, and they were walking with him in the cool of the garden. God had one command for them. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And Satan, in the form of a, of a serpent, a fallen angel, deceived Eve, twisted God's word, and Adam threw aside faith, disobeyed God, and all of mankind was plunged into sin. And what happened immediately after they sinned? They were filled with burden. They were filled with shame. And what did they do? They were separated from God. They didn't die physically. They died spiritually. They were separated. And the evidence of that is they hid behind an oak tree. God wanted to fellowship with them. And their sin and their shame had burdened them. And they hid behind the tree. They were separated from God. Afraid of him, afraid of him, scared to death. The earth was cursed and mankind died that day. Not physically, that would take some time, but spiritually they were separated from God. And you know what that looked like when they were separated from God? They were expelled from God's visible presence. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They could not go back in. In fact, there was a cherubim. A, an angel, a mighty angel with a flaming, whirling sword at the entrance to the garden, guarding the tree of life, not allowing the go in to take life. They were dead. They were separated from God. And the flaming angel said, you shall not enter. And they were banished. And mankind had lost access to life, to salvation. And frankly, the story of the rest of the Bible is the story of a merciful God bringing us back to himself. And that theme of God's presence is taken up again in Genesis chapter 26. In Genesis chapter 26, listen to this, that was the very first time in the Bible where, where God announces to the nation of Israel, I love these words in the Bible, I will be with you. In the context of the promise made to Abraham, you're familiar with the Abrahamic covenant. In the, in the context of that promise of blessing, and would that blessing just be for the Jew? Not in the Abrahamic promise. The blessing to Abraham would extend beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. For in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You say, what's the blessing? Is it money? Is it, what is it? Is it health? 
No, no, the blessing is this. God announces it first, and in the context, it's the nearness of God. It's the presence of God. It's being brought back to him that is the great gospel blessing. I will be with you, Abraham. The first time the presence of God is mentioned, we pick up that theme again in the Bible. The theme of the presence of God is taken up again in Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God, remember, sends Moses to Egypt on his mission of deliverance because the people of God are enslaved. This is why we read our Bibles. Um, The people of God were enslaved in Egypt, and Moses went to release them. And he's freaking out. He's scared to death. I can't do this. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God says to Moses, certainly, I will be with you. And in verse 14, God declares his name, I am that I am. Not I will be that I will be or I was what I was. No, that's all past tense and future tense, which implies he's not there. Which, but no, present tense. Right now, I am that I am. There's something about the name of Yahweh that argues the presence the nearness of God. In fact, one scholar says of the divine name, listen to this, quotes the significance of the divine name, focuses squarely on this great truth. It indicates more than that God is self-existent. He is present among his people. His saving presence was the truth that carried Moses to them. And it was by virtue of his presence that they were delivered, in quotes. And in the wilderness, right? Now they're rescued from Egypt, right? They're rescued from Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness after that rescue from Egypt. And they erected a tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle? They built that tabernacle. And that tabernacle was the place that God was present in a special way. The presence of God again. Exodus 25 verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That word for dwell is shakan in the Hebrew. Does that ring a bell? Shakan. Just remember that name. That I may dwell, shakan, among them. And this became then, the tabernacle became the focal point of worship. For when the tabernacle was finished being constructed, God condescended to come. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Notice that the presence of God and the glory of God are linked in the Bible. They're interchangeable in God's Word. The presence of God, the glory of God, shakan, to dwell, shekinah glory. The shekinah glory of God rested upon the tabernacle as this great theme of the presence of God. Dwelling among men begins to take shape in the progress of revelation. And in fact, the central feature of Old Testament worship, 
Think about this. The very central feature of Old Testament worship is finding a way for sinners to approach the presence of a holy God. Isn't it? Everywhere you look, it explains everything. That big theme. It was a fearsome thing to be in the presence of God. This was the whole significance of the holiest place of the tabernacle and temple. This was the whole significance of all the bloody sacrifices and the atonement. And it was a matter of entering into God's presence. And that entering into God's presence that made tabernacle worship very solemn and very fearful in that day. And we come to the book of Leviticus and we find that the whole function of the priesthood The whole function of the priesthood was to bring the worshiper into the presence of God three times per year. The individual Israelite could not go into the presence of God. It would have been a very difficult and a very fearful thing. In fact, the high priest alone could actually Enter the holiest place where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat was. And only once a year, after careful preparations with jingle bells on, so that if the bell stopped ringing, they'd drag him out as a dead man behind the veil. Is that a fearful thing? The people... We're beyond the veil, separated from the Shekinah glory of God, separated from the presence of God. No sinner could approach the presence of God. One would need to approach in his place, in his stead, as his substitute. And you guessed it, the curtain that separated us from the presence of God The veil had embroidered upon it images of the cherubim and the flaming sword that said, keep out, keep out. Years later, a temple was built. Israel wasn't doing well, fell into gross sin and rebellion as a nation. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied of judgment, 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 all throughout the book. But even in the beginning of the book, which is almost all judgment, it gets very hopeful towards the end, but it's always mixed into that judgment through the prophets was a hope of salvation, a hope of restoration, a hope of deliverance from sin. But in Isaiah's day, things were horrible. Things were really bad. Boy, I'm running out of time. The nation of Assyria. The nation of Assyria. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. They're already divided. They hate each other. Right? The southern kingdom of Israel and Egypt are kind of battling against Assyria, pounding in in those days. And King Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. But then you've got Syria up north with the northern kingdom of Israel And there, 
even in light of Assyria, they're still angry at the south, and they're trying to get rid of King Ahaz. And they're actually trying to appoint a non-Davidic king. And the line of the Messiah was near extinguished in the time of Isaiah. It was a horrific time. And Ahaz, the king of the south, was invited to ask a sign of God's promise to preserve the seed of David. And Ahaz, in his holiness, which was feigned, in his holiness, refused to ask for a sign. But God in his grace says, let me give you one anyways, because that's God. He gives a sign anyways to the house of David. And he says in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah sees a threat not just to King Ahaz, but to the whole house of David because of their sin, because of their faithlessness, and to this faithless house, to a faithless house that abandoned her God, God promises a child named Emmanuel. If you thought it was bad in Isaiah, wait till you get to Ezekiel. It wasn't long until the sin of Israel and Judah became so horrendous. Now listen, the sin at the time of Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 11 through 14, became so horrendous that the prophet Ezekiel speaks are you ready? The prophet Ezekiel speaks because of the sin described that you can't even read to your kids in the prophet Ezekiel. Describes the Shekinah glory, the presence of God in the Holy of Holies moving to the holy place. Moving to the inner court, and then the outer court, and then out of the temple, out of the gather. And then the Shekinah glory goes to the Mount of Olives and goes up, sound familiar? And leaves Israel, and God's presence is gone. And that leads us to the darkness and to the silence of 400 years between the Testaments. Ichabod, God's glory, had departed. And that brings a little bit of weight to what I'm about to say next. But in some Bethlehem hills, to a bunch of losers, couldn't even set foot miles from the temple. These guys were so unholy ritually the shepherds. But the silence was broken, and Luke records it in Luke chapter 2, verse 9, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and God speaks again through his messengers. And the glory of the Lord, what kind of glory do you think that was? Shekinah glory, that's what it was. Don't get me started about the star. The glory of God had settled over the manger. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they're terribly frightened. But the angel of the Lord said to them, do not be what? 
Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the Shekinah glory had come back to Israel on that chilly night in Bethlehem. And it settled over, not a mighty king in the colors of power, but it settled over a little baby cooing and covered with blood in a stable. For verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You see, in Jesus Christ, the glory has returned to Israel. As John writes in John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Guess what word that is? Shakan among us. He tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth in Jesus. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory has returned. And God himself has come to tabernacle among his people. And his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Because in him, in Jesus, we can be brought near to God in the presence of God. How? Because his name is Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. How did he do it? I'll tell you how Jesus did it. Jesus himself was born, and Jesus was baptized. He didn't need to repent. And Jesus always obeyed his mom and dad. And Jesus always obeyed the word of God. He was perfectly righteous, thank you very much. He did it for you. All of your broken, you had to be perfect. He did it. He earned your perfection. For 33 years he never sinned. Even at the end, he opened up his, not his mouth and that illegal night trial and the beating of the rods, the scourging of the whip and the mocking and the crown of thorns and the nails shoved into his wrist and into his ankles. He opened up not his mouth, but he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. And he was obedient to the Father even to the point of death, even the death of the cruel cross. And so he earned the righteousness that you have failed to earn. But what about all your sins? What about all the things you did wrong? Well, upon the cross of Calvary, God needs to be just. And we can't save ourselves, so God poured out the penalty, the wrath, his own righteous wrath, upon himself in the person of his son, the God-man. And Jesus in his own body bore the weight of the cup of the wrath of God and he drank it all the way to the bottom. He paid the penalty for all of your sins upon the cross of Calvary. And you know what he did? By his life, in your place and by his death in your place he dealt with your enemy 
He dealt with sin, and he didn't do it partially, and you help him out. Hey, Jesus, if you put your hand right here, I'll... No, he did it all. He took it away, and now, right, you will be brought near to God. Did he do it? He said, it is finished. Did he prove that it was finished? Yes, he rose up from the grave, and he conquered death itself. How do we know that he's brought us near to God? How do you know that we can be with God in our Emmanuel? I'll tell you how we know. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50 says this. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the veil was torn so that we now, through his body, have access to God. The cherubim with the whirling sword torn asunder, access to God. Fellowship with God again in the cool of the garden because of our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder at the very end of the book of Matthew, Jesus says, right, now he's risen from the grave. All authority has been given to him. And he gives us the great commission. And then he says, lo, I am with you all the day, even to the end of the age. And watch this. It's ego me. It's emphatic. I am with you. He uses the name of God tying it back to God with us in Emmanuel as bookends of the book of Matthew. God in Christ is the great Emmanuel. And Christian, we're not brought near to God where he's like, I can't believe I'm in your presence. No, no, we're in Christ. Our sin is gone. We're righteous. He, he, he says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. I'm well pleased with you. He looks at us in Christ. He says that to you. The big problem of the Christian life is we don't believe that. We forget the message of Christmas, that his name is still Emmanuel, that it's still God with us. We must remember this. As Mindy and Hannah sang this morning, when you're unfaithful, weak, and unstable, remember Jesus, your Emmanuel, and lo, I am with you always. When you are barren and waiting and weary of praying, remember Jesus, my Emmanuel, and lo, you are with me all the day. When you are bitter and broken with fears unspoken, Remember Jesus, your Emmanuel. Lo, I am with you always. When you are guilty and hiding, feeling like running, come, remember Emmanuel, God is with us. And lo, I am with you all the days, even to the end of the age. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you to bring you near to God. <laughs> I don't know why you wouldn't want that. I'm serious. I know God's sovereign. I know we're stubborn sinners, but I am serious. 
Why would you not want to be brought near to God this morning? Why live in separation and misery? Come to Jesus. He invites you to come. He still speaks today, come to me. This is Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus said, come to me. Come in your weariness. Come in your brokenness. You don't have to fix yourself. You can't. Come and let him save you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And when you do, when you do, the black mark of sin, the victory of Christ is like an eraser. The black mark of sin on your forehead is erased and your sin is gone. And instead, he writes 100% righteous on your forehead. Sin gone, full righteousness. No wonder the writer of Hebrews can say this in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brother, and that's you, if you've believed. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Why? Because of the blood of Manuel, God with us. And I know it just feels half-baked, this presence talk. It does. But I'll tell you, it's already, but it's not yet. There will come a day, one day, in Revelation 21, verse 3, and listen to the presence talk. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell, Shakan, he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. This is the message of Christmas, and this is the message of joy to all the world.